Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. Today, we're going to be doing a market review and covering Houston, one of the largest cities in the United States, and also a giant sprawling metropolis deep in the heart of Texas. To help us walk through that, we've brought Stacy Sutter on the show. He is a broker in Texas and runs a company called Summit VA Solutions that takes care of a lot of the things that you can't quite automate yet. So with that, Stacy, welcome to the show. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. It's a beautiful day in Vegas. How's the weather in Houston? We are finally getting some rain after 100 plus weather for multiple days. We have finally got some rain. Nice. Nice little reprieve. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into some of the, the stuff on Houston because I think too much rain has been a problem for you in the past. Uh, yeah, we've had a few days that we've had a little flooding. <laughs> Fair. It doesn't happen very often. Fair. So on the real estate side, at this point, you are a broker. You've been in real estate for quite some time. I've worked with you in various capacities for somewhere like six or seven years now. So what was the beginning of that, though? How'd you end up in real estate and how'd you end up in real estate in Houston? Well, it, uh, I owned a restaurant consulting business in Japan. And that's, that's, well, a, that's a great opener. Like, now I want to go back and find out how you got there. Well, a uh, hundred years ago, when the earth was young, um, I put myself through college and uh, ended up coming out of school. I was going to be a school teacher, and I did my first week of student teaching and walked into my advisor's office and said, I'm done. I'm out. Forget it. I will kill one of those little people. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I uh, had been putting myself through school by working as a waiter and as a restaurant manager, got into the restaurant industry, was there for 13 years. And I had an owner that came and said, hey, why are you doing this? Long story short, I started a consulting business, got a contract from the United States Marine Corps and spent about 18 months living in Okinawa, Japan, um, working for the Corps. So I did the same kind of thing. I was doing... Uh, I was doing my graduate studies in psychology and I did one summer where I did cognitive behavioral therapy for adolescents mm-hmm. at an, an overweight kids camp. And after one summer of that I went, I do not want to practice. I have no desire to do therapy. And I was bartending and all that stuff at the time. You know, you work in food service forever when you're in college. I didn't find any owner that wanted to take me to Japan or set up a contract with the military. So you got a good deal on that one. I got a hell of a gig. I'm not going to lie. It was, it was probably the best 18 months of my life. Um, oh. I didn't have to live on base. So there was nobody screaming at, you know, 430 in the morning and wanting to go out and do exercise. I'm like, no, ain't for me, kids. Um, I sold out to my partner. My parents lived in California, went back there. I owned a Mazda Miata and a West White Highland Terrier. He and I hit the road, drove all over America, decided to try to find where quote unquote home was. Yeah. Um, Ended up back in Bakersfield at my parents' house and uh, said, well, shit, I can sell anything to anybody. What's the biggest thing you can sell? Oh, houses. So I went (laughs) to real estate school, worked for a phenomenal independent called Watson Realty in Bakersfield, California. Had some phenomenal mentors. One year into it. Um, I had done five million in sales, and uh, my wife came home one day. Actually, she was my girlfriend at the time. We were living together. We bought a condo together, 
And she said, uh, Halliburton has moved his home to Houston. Now, I'm oil field trash. I grew up in the oil field. My father was an executive for Exxon. I, I hadn't heard that term before, oil field trash. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, it's so evocative. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about right away. So uh, I had lived in just about every place they had ever drilled for oil in the continental United States. Wow. From Billings, Montana to Lafayette to Midland, Texas, Bakersfield, Denver. Do you live in Alaska? Um, about, huh? Do you live in Alaska at all? No. Thank God we didn't have to go to Alaska. I don't like snow. Like <laughs> fluffy stuff falling from the sky just puts me into a tither. Um, but uh, so I went to real estate school and uh, they offered the, the number one student in their real estate school got an offer for um, got an offer from them and everybody else could go wherever they wanted. Well, number one was already taken. He went to Coldwell Banker. They took me cause I was number two and I just trumped the holy living out of the guy that was number one. I think he did a million or two in his first year. <laughs> they said they may have definitely made the right decision. Wife comes home, says, Hey, we're going to Houston. I had left in 87 said, I'm never coming back to this town. I grew up here. And you know, here we are, 1998, and I'm moving back to Houston. And my <laughs> wife will tell you that she wasn't sure I was going to show up until my truck actually pulled into the driveway. <laughs> That's fair. That's but fair. But in the meantime, um, I had a mentor in California who only sold HUD property. That was his specialty. He wouldn't help anybody. He came out of the restaurant industry, and he said, Hey, look, I'm going to let you work in my office. I'm going to teach you everything I know about HUD because I don't want you to starve to death when you move to Houston. And I said, all right, let's do it, Bill. So I worked in his office for about seven or eight weeks while I was closing my business down. Yeah. And uh, I worked for 0.0% and the man treated me like a slave. And I loved every minute of it. Um, moved to Houston, opened up. Went to work for a brokerage here in town. Question about the HUD angle. Was he pushing yeah. on the HUD thing? Is there a lot of HUD properties and business in Houston and he wanted to prep you for that? Or is it something that wherever you're at, there's always some? There's always some HUD property everywhere you go. Okay. Um, and the nice thing was is there's not a lot of people that understand how to sell HUD real estate. Hmm. Um, and it was a great training course because ultimately I became an REO broker, um, moved here. We ran these little like two inch ads in the classified sections for investors wanting to buy HUD property. And my business exploded. I went from, you know, the quiet new guy who sat in the corner and just kept his head down to becoming the top producing agent in my office. And, um, uh, that blossomed into me meeting a guy in the office that was an REO broker. And the funny part was, is he said, Hey, you won't be an REO broker. Big <laughs> redneck, you know, you know, REO brokers back in the, at the beginning of 2000. I mean, the oh. entire city of Houston had nine REO, REO brokers total. Jesus. And if I had a deal that was too far away, I would just refer it to one of the other REO brokers and we all yep. helped each other. Yeah. And so the nine of us pretty well had the market locked up as far as being able to do for foreclosure work here, but nobody wanted to do it. 
you're going into stinky houses. It's 110 degrees. God only knows what you're going to meet. I've held drug dealers at gunpoint. I've walked into every situation except a dead body. I've never had a property with a body in it. Thank goodness. Wow. Yeah, that would be uh, a rough one, especially well, if you made the dead body when you were confronting a drug dealer. This, this, is, this is true. Um, no, that young man walked away. Um, and he and I met a couple of months later uh, on a property visit. And he thanked me for doing that and said he was never going to do it again. We'll see. Um, but anyway, so I got into the REO world. I worked uh, for 1%. I did my own HUD stuff. And then I worked for this guy for 1.0% on anything I could close in his office. Oh, man. And, um, you know, he was getting ready to retire. He offered me the business for a million dollars. I told him, dude, I don't have a million dollars. If you, Even if I did, your business doesn't generate that kind of return. Um, in the 13th hour, I signed a deal to get just the Freddie Mac contract. Oh. Um, for anybody who's ever going to sell their real estate business, just know that the way you sell an or, uh, a real estate business is you take a percentage coming off of your database. So you sell them basically your database and then anything that's generated from that database over the next three, four, five, six, seven years, however long you can get it stretched out to, you get a, a percentage. Well, when I took over the Freddie Mac account, he was doing about three transactions a month over a five year period at the end. When I finally paid him out, um, he was getting 20% of all of our deals and we were averaging somewhere around 16 to 17 transactions a month. Geez, so, so he, he made out like a bandit. <laughs> um, so by the time 2000, got, around, huh? it seems like you've got a, a long history of working your beep off for other people. <laughs> you know, I it's that's true. But the difference is, is I look at it as I got an education that you couldn't pay for. Yeah. Um, I learned things. I can tell you exactly what HUD's lowest price is they'll take for a property um, regardless. So oh, I know what their bottom line number is and know how to calculate it. Um, but uh, when 2008 rolled around, we, uh, we had about 53, 54 clients um, going into the big REO bust and um, <clears throat> going into that. It got to the point we had so many properties here in the Houston market that I was actually firing clients because they were only sending me three, four, five deals a year. And I've got Freddie Mac and I yeah. ultimately ended up as Freddie Mac's training broker here in Houston. But I had Freddie Mac send me 25, 30 properties a month. Jesus. And so um, we were averaging in the middle of all that. We were averaging about 350 transactions a year and I was doing it with a virtual assistant team and two field guys and myself. We had a team of 27. We were doing a million plus in GCI for about six years. Um, and you know, it was a wild ride. That's crazy. Goodness it ended. <laughs> because yeah. So we'll, we'll come back and we'll dig into that quite a bit. Sure. Uh, at this point, you're, it sounds like you're pretty established. You've got yep. your connections, you've got all your stuff working, right? But it, I think the the thing that right here pivots for you is using those virtual assistants, having the offshore 
is that where your pivot happens is after kind of everything gets cleaned up from the the first big or the big uh, property crash? Yeah. Um, I had two assistants. Um, one is Bernadette Canero. She's an industrial engineer. The other one is Cecile Animus. She's a computer engineer. And at that point, we had worked together for six years. And when it all went to down the toilet on the REO world, which is a good thing for the market, um, we just kind of, I just continued to pay him and we kind of hung out for about a year. We opened Brookshire Hathaway's property management company here in Houston. So I got another view of the industry and the market. And, um, and then we opened Summit VA Solutions, our virtual assistant company. Yeah. And that's, that's been running now for then over a decade. Uh, no, we, uh, right we seven this year on April Fool's Day. Okay. <laughs> it's always a good anniversary for a company just to keep you humble. Forget it. Just to keep you humble. <clears throat> okay. So that sets you up. And now, now I think you're more than qualified to talk about Houston. I knew you were anyway, just because we've talked about it a couple of times. Um, in the Houston market, when you were rolling into the five, six, seven, and then seven, eight, nine, when it kind of really collapsed. Mm-hmm. What was Houston doing at that point? Like how was how was Houston handling it that was unique to kind of the Texas Houston scene? Um, how'd that roll through? How did it affect business? Well, obviously it, it boosted your business, right. but how were other realtors reacting to it? Did you guys have all those realtors who just came in, made a ton of money and then fell off the face of the earth after it? Yeah, there were some that tried that. Um, you know, the, the thing is, is that you have to back up to 1987. In 1987, the oil industry crashed and burned. And mm-hmm. this city literally died. <laughs> every, about six out of every 10 homes were foreclosures or just people had walked away from them completely. Um, my parents luckily kept a job, but they had to move to Midland, Texas to keep a job. Um, <laughs> And the city was devastated. And at the time, we had this little short mayor named Kathy Whitmire. Um, and she was a little fire plug, about four foot eleven, five foot tall. And understand, I was in I was in college. I had just graduated high school in '85. And I can remember watching her on the news and saying, This, I am never going to allow this to happen to the city of Houston again. This is ridiculous. We will never go through this again. A few years later, a friend of mine um, was a commercial real estate agent, and I asked him about it, and he said the mayor called in all the major commercial real estate brokerages into a conference, and she said, I want you to get on airplanes. I want you to fly to the Northeast, to the Rust Belt, and I want you to find every company that wants to move to Houston. Office space that had been leasing in the downtown high-rises at 100 bucks a foot was like $10 a square foot. Um, She said, I want you to fill those towers and then we will put together plans to give them um, economic relief, help them with taxes and all that fun stuff that goes along in the politics side of it. So this is a a campaign on her side for diversification of the economy. She's going, we can't just be oil. We got to do everything. You got to do everything. Interesting. That's amazing. The city of Houston is called home by more Fortune 500 companies than anywhere else in the world. 
We've got biotech, we've got medical, we've got oil, we've got energy, we've got computers, we've got the whole gamut. Um, yeah. And so when 2006 hit, yeah, people, some people lost their houses, but it was people who weren't necessarily the most educated buyer and they didn't understand, you know, a loan yeah. that was going to expand as the interest rate yeah. expanded and they got caught. So yeah. it became what it was. Interesting. So let's let's stay in like the 80s and 90s a little bit because I think one of the things that makes Houston unique too as a real estate market is the mm -hmm. zoning laws there. Like Houston is this sprawling thing with like five city centers. It's so strangely configured compared to other cities. What are you laughing at me for? It's true. It's bizarre. It is. You want to know how big the city of Houston is? Oh, yeah. How big is it? Huge. Here's like some numbers for you. City of New York. Let's start there. City of okay. New York. New York. 8.8 .8 million people live there. It is 309 square miles total. Yep. Tiny. Los Angeles, second largest city. 3.8 million people, 502.7 square miles. Okay. Chicago, number three, home to 2.74 million people, 234.5 square miles. City of Houston, 2.3 million people. The city, just the city limits, 600, 600 square miles. Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's some sprawl. Yeah. Oh, and man, we, you got suburbs on suburbs on suburbs. Yeah. Absolutely. That doesn't include the Metroplex. Metroplex kicks us up to number three as far as the largest cities are concerned. Yeah, it's 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 big. It's a huge city. It is huge. And you plan accordingly. So it but that is because of it, am I correct in that's because of zoning? Like the zoning's rather permissive in Houston. So if you want to build that, you just go buy land and build it. Pretty much. The okay. city of Houston is the largest metropolitan area with zero zoning requirements. So if you don't have a homeowners association, and I live in a neighborhood that doesn't have an HOA that's within the city, um, there's nothing that says that across the street, they could put in a stop and go, a gas station next, to next door to me, and Walmart could go in on the other corner. Wow. As I sit here looking out my window onto my property because my office is at home, across the street I have a World War II Quonset hut that is used for the Hispanic AA meetings. Diagonally, okay. I have a four-story, 600-unit apartment complex. <laughs> right across the street next to that, I have a very, very cool and contemporary modern home that was built approximately two years ago. And I live in a 1,365 square foot 1920s bungalow <laughs> <laughs> with an 1,100 square foot garage behind it, two stories, and I have 1,100 square foot of office space on top of that. That's so bizarre. Yeah. Okay. So on the other side of this though, and this is something that we alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. Is, is that zoning and is that urban sprawl part of what contributed to the massive amount of flooding after Harvey? It like, is. I've, I've heard that there's part of the paving, like made it so that the ground can't soak up the water. And that's one of the problems we run into 
um, keep in mind, we're obviously on the Gulf Coast. Um, yeah, you right. down six inches, it's solid clay. The mm. city has sprawled. We've got all of this concrete. The water doesn't have anywhere to go. So if we get an inch or so of water rain, then the bayous and the tributaries that feed them, they'll be 35, 40 feet deep in a matter of minutes. Um, it's kind of scary how fast the water moves. That's crazy. And then your some of your freeways are built below grade to help move the water, correct? No. Oh, no. Okay. So they just no, flood. They're not below grade to move water, but they do catch it. And we have signs of where it goes below ground level that says, do not enter if flooding. And then there's a gauge on the side of the underpass that shows you how many feet deep the water is. And invariably, every time it rains, somebody drives their car in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so let's talk about how that affects rental properties too. Cause I think sure. that's one of the things that you and I both were working. I was working for American homes for rent and you were our broker when that flowed through. And I think one of the things that struck me and it was one of the, one of the few times, well, not one of the few times, but it was one of the times where it really showed up the benefit of having a larger organization. Cause a lot of the homes that were just devastated, they were gutted. They were three or four feet of water, the renovations took almost a year to get all those houses back on. But at the time that it happened, we also had vacant homes that were available to rent. So for a lot of those people in the homes, American Homes for Rent was able to just take them and put them in a different house. Right. Now, that's something that's really difficult to do if you've got two or three doors, 10 doors, and you lose three. You're not likely to have enough to cover it. Um, being on the ground and being there for that, what was your your take on like that whole displacement how bad was it for renters and homeowners it was it was the most devastating thing you could possibly imagine um i know people who had 12 13 14 15 feet of water in their houses Oof, up to the second story level. huh that's going to the second story that's nowhere's it was um you know our neighbors to the east the cajun navy showed up Airboats came in, rednecks pulled out their fishing boats and went in and rescued people. We're the fourth largest city in America, but you have never seen a city come together and help each other than Houston did in a natural disaster. That's great. People were literally opening their homes to people they didn't know because they didn't have a place to live. Um, and it was an amazing feat. Um, at the time, I was I was working for a company called Vendor Resource Management, which is uh, the company that holds the VA foreclosure contract. Okay. And we were opening all of the VA properties that had not flooded. Um, they gave basically free rent. If you needed a house, let me know, and we would find a property for you and put you in it. And there was no rent. Um, That's great. So we were flying around making repairs on stuff that probably would have never been repaired um, and sold as is, but absolutely. So it was an amazing time. Um, the market took a hit soon after the, soon after the flood waters receded, um, the institutional investors showed up and just started buying stuff as fast as they could. Um, yeah. Because I mean, there were a lot of people that said, you know what, 
this is the third time we've been flooded. This is the worst time we've been flooded. Yeah. Let me just get my insurance check. You can have the damn house back. They just walk away from them. Yeah. So the institutional buyers definitely swept in. Um, a lot of big companies were able to pick up a lot of, a lot of really nice properties, but they were going to need a hundred thousand dollars worth yeah. of work between mold remediation and repairs and updating. Yeah. But that's where institutional buyers are great because right. not everybody one wants to do that. Not everybody number two can afford to do that. Yeah. So it worked out really well. Well, it's similar to the situation in 2007, eight, nine. I think that there is a lot of credit to be given to institutional buyers for kind of putting a floor on the market. And when everything was just crashing and just dropping, there was a point where Invitation, Progress, Blackstone as an investment arm for institution or for Invitation and American Homes for Rent were just coming in and going, yeah, we'll buy it. What's it at? Oh, yep, we'll buy it because that's a good price for us. We're going to hold it for five, 10 years and we'll see where the market's at and then we'll decide what to do. Like it's, it's great that that, that was able to arrest it. Um, the flooding part. So this is something that I know I've heard talked about in Louisiana because Louisiana, there's a couple of spots where it's flooded so many times and they've got the levee system to keep the water where it's supposed to be. But some of the homes have flooded so many times that they've rebuilt a hundred thousand dollar house seven or eight times at a cost of a hundred thousand dollars each time. Yep. Like, and at some point, do you think there'll be portions of Houston or anywhere else really, but Houston's where I'm thinking of it now where they say, you know what? We shouldn't have houses here because we're just going to have to rebuild them every two years. Um, so we actually have a floodplain and it was pretty massive. It was an agreement cut between the city of Houston and the federal government. And the Corps of Engineers was supposed to buy this massive piece of property and develop it for flood control. Hmm. But as we all know, the federal government doesn't move on the, on the fastest of speeds. And the city founding fathers decided that, hey, well, you know, we could just sell this little piece here off. Oh, we could just sell that little piece off. It ultimately is fully developed now. And that's exactly what has happened. Um, So we've had an opportunity. Six, seven times. Um, And so there is is talk now that um, either FEMA or the Corps of Engineers will come in and begin buying those properties over the course of X number of years, start dismantling those neighborhoods and putting putting the real reservoir in that was supposed to have been there the whole time. Interesting. So we yeah. missed an opportunity to do it right the first time. And now it's going to be more expensive to do it the second time. Oh, yeah. Way, oh. way more expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about buying what's developed and tearing it down. Yeah, that's brutal. Um, raw land. Yeah, raw land's a lot easier to deal with than anything yeah. with people on it. <laughs> so Houston also has this this huge sports scene, right? So you guys have football teams and baseball teams, you've got basketball teams. How does that contribute to the rentability and kind of the structure of rentals in Houston? Do sports teams and facilities increase the number of rentable properties? Um, I don't think it does. I think yeah. jobs is what increases the number of rental properties. 
sports, yeah. teams, sports teams give you a reason and something to do when you're there. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it actually increases unless, of course, you count the athletes that are, you know, renting high rise apartments yeah, and stuff and they're only here for four or five months. But, um, <laughs> but no, they do, pro- they do provide, you know, something to do. Cause this is, so this is something that we talked about when we were talking about Las Vegas, cause Las Vegas got its, its stadium. It's got the, a couple of sports teams now, but the numbers that we were talking about is that something like a hotel casino in Vegas, mm-hmm. you get four jobs per door and the stadium and the arenas and stuff, you've got uh, eight games in a season, 16 games in a season. If you got oh, two teams, you got, you know, yeah. a bunch of baseball games, but even then you're not, creating the jobs. So with that and with how diversified Houston is now, mm-hmm. how do you see it growing and getting more jobs if it's already so diverse and so spread and sprawling? Well, that's pretty easy. We are in the middle of experiencing a mass migration from the great state of California. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if you think about it and the median house price in the city of Houston is 355000 That's up 13.2% from, thir- from 313000 That house is going to be somewhere around 2,700 square feet on a 6,000 to 6,500 square foot lot. Now, if I take that same house, pick it up and move it to the great Republic of California, I'm looking at a $2.1 million home, right? I bought Uh, my first home in San Diego and it was a three bed, one bath, a thousand square feet. And I bought it for 250,000 and I sold it for 520,000. And that was three years ago. So I have no idea what it's worth now. It's probably closing in on a million. It was built in 1949. Exactly. That's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah I, I can see the migration poll. So people are so in our in our market itself, on the sales side of it, um, you know, people are, especially people from out of state are moving here. Um, they just sold 1.2 million. They walk in here. Here's three times the house on a lot, good and a huge lot compared to what they had in California or wherever else got great schools, you know, dad's got a 45 minute to an hour commute into the city. We do not have mass transit in the city of Houston. You do have to have a car here, but you know, the kids and mom are happy. They got a pool. They got this house. It's five bedrooms, four and a half bath, game room, place for the kids. And they walk in and let's say the list price is $450,000. They will literally walk in and say, "What's your best offer? Four fifty. Yeah. I'll give you four seventy cash, and we close it in ten days." Yeah. And so we're getting an artificial, in we're getting an artificial price increase in the market because that house really isn't worth that. And it's a little scary from the real estate standpoint because if this recession, mm-hmm. quote unquote, that we're in right now continues and people start to lose jobs, a lot of these folks that have bought these houses are going to be upside down and aren't going to be able to get out of them yeah. for what they paid for them. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So do you think there's a, a ceiling to that? Like if, so right now we're looking at two quarters of negative growth. So the mm-hmm. technical definition of a recession, but do you think that there's continued capacity for that migration? Or do you think that there's kind of a, a natural ceiling to it anyway, or will just people keep coming and pushing on it? I think the natural ceiling has already been reached. Um, no. Beginning of this summer here in this market, um, I had a friend of mine, also a broker, put a house on the market, uh, drove by. It was vacant, drove by at nine o'clock in the morning just to see how the open house was going. Um, there were 47 agents and their clients lined up in the front yard. They were all complaining because they had a, a showing time scheduled at X and that had been an hour ago. And they, you know, here we always go in one at a time. We don't just open the house and let everybody swarm it. Um, and he was like stunned. Flip side, and and the market for the most part right now is still that way in that 250 to, let's say, $550,000, $600,000 price range. Um, yeah. Behind me are two houses. Um, my neighbor's on the market for 1.52. Um, is his a 1920 bungalow too? Or huh? Is his a bungalow as well? Or is it a, a no, he, he has one of the new ones, two story, five or six years old. Gotcha. Um, I live in the historic district, but because of no zoning, they have new construction in here. Um, so it's only historic until it's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but he started at 1.7 and that was more than 90 days ago, two Mm -hmm. doors down. It's almost the same story. They're a couple of hundred thousand dollars off. They're equal in equal in size, equal in lot size. Um, and, and both of them are still on the market. Um, Mm -hmm. I think anything over a million, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, if you can afford a million dollar home, you probably already have a really nice house. Yeah. And so I think with a quote unquote downturn in the market, the recession or whatever you want to call it, um, I think people in that price range are like, you know what? Let's put a pool in the backyard for the kids and let's just wait and make sure we yeah. have a job and kind of see what the economy is going to do over the next 18 months to 24 months. Yeah. So does that mean that you think most of the pressure is happening like right around first home and household formation? Yes. Okay. And then the, the California transplants. Yeah. Like those are the two that are competing for the market. Um, the, the other thing that I think is pulling buyers out of the market is we have gone for so long with such low interest rates. Yeah. That, um, I talked to, I was talking to a lender yesterday. Um, they're, you know, they're offering up 5.5%. And people are like, oh my goodness, 5.5%. I can remember when my dad sold our house in, um, in, oh God, 1987. Oh, so you, yeah, those the were high. The rate on the house was 18%. Yeah. And he had to carry two points for the buyer for two years. So that they would qualify. Jesus. I, um, yeah, 5.5 is still a great rate. It's an amazing rate. It's an amazing rate. 
when they first hit it coming in on the other side, they're like, well, you've never seen rates this low. And then, then you drop down below three for a while and everybody freaks out when it goes above three. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Well, and you know, I'm in the industry and it had absolutely nothing with it. Um, but we refinanced our house when the interest rate dropped so low and I had like 2.8. I was like, that's rocking. Yeah. I'll take that all day long. Yeah. The guy that bought the loan called me and he said, uh, Mr. Sutter, I said, yeah. He said, uh, I think I can get you 1.75. What? And I went, look, dude, I'm a licensed real estate broker. You send me the paperwork. I think you're blowing smoke. He sent it over. I called him back about an hour later and said, you lock it right now. Holy crap. Did yeah. you get 1.75? What? <laughs> That's amazing. I, uh. I was like, and and they immediately sold the loan to Freddie Mac. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was the big thing is that the government was buying up mortgages like crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I'm a, so I got really lucky and refied and I, I refied because I was, I went through a divorce and so I was refined to pull money out, but I refied and I got under 3%. And I was like, Oh, that's great. That's amazing. And yeah. then like a year and a half later, they were still there. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to buy a new house now. Yeah. But I think that a lot of the people that are now in those loans, mm-hmm. I don't see them moving up for years. They're going to stay in it because anything they get comparable, they'll pay more. Right. Right. So there's there's a lot of a lock-in built into that where they might want a four-bedroom, three-bath eventually because they're going to have kids, but they're stuck in a three-two because they've got that yeah. points on them. That's their rate, and it's great. Yeah, absolutely. so I think that's going to be interesting to, to see what the echo of this is in five, ten years. Yeah, uh, it really just don't move. Hmm? Right? Yeah, just a whole bunch of people not moving. Um, switching to the other side of the supply, what's building like right now in Houston? So people can build whatever they want, but how's supply for uh, materials? How's supply for labor? What What are people doing to get more housing out there? Everything we can. Um, you know, the problem is, quote unquote, the supply chain issue has caused a shortage in lumber. We don't have enough labor. Um, it's, you know, it's extremely difficult. Um, it took me almost 18 months to build an 1100 square foot garage hmm. um, with a second story attached to it. I literally had to drive around to five different shingle shops myself because I GC'd my own deal and I had to go to five different shingle companies to get enough shingles to cover 1100 square feet that all matched. Oh, wow. Um, Was I it a fancy it, shingle or just asphalt shingles or regular asphalt shingles? Wow. I just couldn't get any enough to do 1100 square feet of roof space in the same color. Weird. Um, you know, it was, Lumber is extremely difficult to get. Um, it has lessened a little bit, but then you end up with the labor issue. There's not enough people to build homes. Um, you know, in the city of Houston, you don't have to be licensed to be a GC, but you can go out and develop a piece of property without a permit or without a license, but your, your subs all have to be licensed. Okay. And so, you know, between the permitting process, trying to find labor. Um, 
I waited almost two weeks to have a plumber come in and run pecs in the walls. Really? Um, I mean, that was how backed up they were. And they, and they had a six month notice that that was my construction date. Wow. So, you know, it, and, and the plumber that did it is a friend of mine. <laughs> so <laughs> hey, the best I can do for you. you. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the, so, I so I think the other side of that and where we're going to see continued uh, price pushes is that because the labor takes more time and more money to get because the materials take more time and more money to get. There's a lot of people that have carrying costs then on all these properties they're holding with notes right. on the back end for construction. So that means that when they come out the other side, a three, two, a four, three, that normally be a 240, $250,000 home is probably going to be closer to 300, 325, right? Exactly. So that's going to balloon the new home costs and you yep. can't kind of get away from that. You're exactly right. Because, you know, they've got a margin built in that they need to hit and it's going to be, hey, this is the price. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you guys have USDA zones out there? The ones where you uh, can get the weird. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so then what's what's is anybody looking down at the, the that future kind of space and going, well, I guess we'll build more apartments to rent or what's the what's the solution for this housing squish that's happening now? And especially well, if the government starts buying up all those houses and needs to move people from the floodplain. Exactly. So in the rental market, in, in our market for sure, uh, we are getting massive, and I mean massive apartment complexes. Hmm. Most of them are no more than four stories, because if you go over four stories, you then have to use structural steel. And below four stories and below, they can use wood framing. Huh. So okay. across the street from me, I've got 600 units. Go two blocks over. They've got a complex that is built on two full city blocks, and it's like 13 or 1400 units. What? Yeah, it's massive. Four stories, parking garage, and they're not done with it yet. And that's uh, 13, 1400 units. So you've got 3,000 to 5,000 people living in there. Yes. Oh my God. Yep. Oh, I think that's bigger than any tribe that we've ever encountered or has been walking around. That's so many people. Well, you figure we're the, we're in the city of Houston. There are, um, 3,600 rental homes. We're number four in the nation for rental property. And those are, those are single family rentals. Those are single family rentals. Okay. The average rent for those are $1,742 a month. It's pretty good. Yeah. Not, it's not a bad business to be in. No. Um, you know, my, my advice to the very, very few investors I still work with is we still have some fairly decent sized tracts of land that are very, very close to the city within within three or four miles of downtown Houston. They might not be the most desirable neighborhood to put new construction in. But my my advice to our clients is purchase the property now. It's only going to go up in value. You're three miles from downtown Houston. Yeah. Put a street down the middle, 
subdivided into lots, build fourplex apartments, on, one on each lot. You can get a one to four regular family, one to four regular loan uh, contract on it. You can get FHA financing on it. You can keep them as rentals for long-term acquisition of wealth, or yeah. you can build it and sell it as soon as it's half full and investors step in, give you pretty yeah. close to twice what you paid for it. And it's on its own lot. So it's got its own tax code and you're good to walk away. So with those pieces of land though, is somebody's land banking them now, right? Somebody's sitting on them and doing that, or are they just, not really. Really? So who holds uh, the title? Are they just kind of families? Floating? Families that, like huh. I said, maybe not the most desirable neighborhood, but it's a little rough around the edges. Not not really good schools. Not really parks. Not really commuter friendly nah, or walker friendly. Or just generally friendly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. But I mean, you can still pick up. 10,000 square feet of raw dirt for 185,000. Huh. That's so a pretty good most of The city doesn't give you a hard time and just sit on it and wait till you're ready to build on it. Yeah. Just watch for all the deals and then you'll not be able to get appliances for another two years. <laughs> well, you know, and that's the thing. Um, you know, you're probably you, the, the neighborhood needs to transition more. <laughs> And before you start coming in with new construction. So with the zoning, the way it is, how do you encourage changes in neighborhoods? Like having, I know that Houston has a couple of places that are real food deserts where there's no grocery stores nearby. It's just all fast food and 7-Elevens and Circle Ks. So is there anything at the city level that's trying to revitalize, restore, enhance schools or parks or what i mean what how do you do that we don't it's, it's pretty sad yeah uh, it's really hard to do anything if there's no zoning and no support there yeah and keep in mind um in my neighborhood i'm in the historic district mm -hmm. you can tear down a home that's on the national historic register within 60 days of filing the correct paperwork really no zoning no rules, no homeowners association to go, no, no, no. In my neighborhood, I'm on a 10,000 square foot lot. Okay. So the our previous mayor to the one we currently have, um, the problem in the city of Houston is infrastructure costs money. But because we're so spread out, we don't have the tax base to support the infrastructure that we need. Hmm. The city of Houston's water supply, the main lines, are the original lines that are made out of brick and concrete that were laid in the early 1800s. Ooh. Yes. At least there's no lead. There's no lead. <laughs> you got the right window for that one. <laughs> oh, but um, but so, the, so the mayor at the time said, yeah. okay. The average lot size we're going to allow for builders to develop um, within the city is going to be 2,500 square foot lots. Okay. So if you equate that out, I'm sitting on four, four lots where my little 1,365 house, square foot house is. Those lots yeah. are selling on the average for about 250000 a lot. God, so, so they came in. 
they said, okay, the distance between houses, when I moved here 15 years ago, the distance yeah. between houses was a minimum of 12 feet. Then it went down to six feet. The distance between houses now in the city of Houston is 18 inches. <laughs> that's that's close. So we we were talking about this in Vegas, and just to compare those two, Vegas to get the water use down and the population density in, they've mm-hmm. waived the need for new single families to have yards, and a deck on top of the house counts as outdoor space. Right. So it satisfies that qualifier. And they're close. They're like, they're like you're saying, 18 inches, two feet apart. Yeah. They're real close. Can't get in the backyard from the side yard. No, absolutely not. You're not going to get a lawnmower down between them either. So you no, have, can't either get... have back entrance or, that, or two lawnmowers. That 10-gallon hat's brushing on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> so – the other thing that's that's kind of hitting on this, so besides the water and the hurricanes and the tropical stuff that comes through, you just mm-hmm. mentioned like how long it's been since you've had rain. Right. How is the – is there any kind of a water shortage? Do you guys have a lot more um, uh, restrictions or anything like that? Or does Houston still have plenty of water? It's just dry and not raining. It's It's very dry right now. Um, our water supply comes from Lake Houston, which all the rivers tributaries feed into. Um, we are under mandatory, uh, not mandatory, voluntary water rationing. Um, you know, we only water our yard twice a week, um, usually at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, the sprinkler system will come on. Um, but for the most part, it hasn't gotten so bad yet that it's affecting the trees. Um, and in the last week we've gotten these, like you may have heard earlier, you could hear the thunder and the lightning. Um, we get these late afternoon showers and that's usually the way Houston is through the summer. But because of the winds coming off of Africa, which I know sounds really funny, but we actually watch them because they directly affect hurricane season, yeah. in both Florida and Texas. Um, there hasn't been any wind coming off. So we went like four weeks straight with every day over a hundred degrees. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was just horrible. Um, and so, you know, you don't go out until the sun goes down because you'll just fry. Are there, are there many properties in Houston without AC? It's a human place. So normally you'd have it, but are there, yeah, there's you, you don't live in the city of Houston without air conditioning. Okay. Okay. Cause I know that they were talking about in Europe recently, none of their houses in England specifically, nobody has AC. Everything's built to keep the heat in and they right. were breaking a hundred for a couple of days and they're not made for it. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it was like I was just in New York last week. I was hoping for cooler weather, thinking I'm going to the oh. Northeast. 97 degrees. I'm like, yeah. wait a minute. What do yeah. you mean I'm walking seven hours today? No, I'm not going to go see the city. Uber. Yeah. Uber has bad air conditioning in Uber. But every, every apartment that I saw had the old inefficient window unit. Yeah. And I'm like, that's so yeah. weird. Why do you guys not have central heat and air? <laughs> Well, they need heat more than they need air conditioning, and I guess they just suffer through the summer. Yeah, well, so I lived in on the island. I lived in Manhattan for a couple of years, and while I was there, it was phenomenal because 
the buildings that I was in had the heat was all the pipes, right? So the steam pipes are radiant heat for the rooms. And in the property I was in, we had a boiler in the basement, but there's a whole network of pipes that's centrally managed. And New York city has boilers that go to like 10% of the buildings in downtown. And so they're, they're the city's heat. And then there's no AC, excuse me, there's no AC. That's all window units. Yeah. And you know, for me growing up in Houston, that is a concept that I just can't even imagine. It's just bizarre. Yeah. Well, they settled it without air conditioning. So they were living there for a while with just being hot. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, just... my 1920 bungalow. Yeah. So most new construction here in the city is on concrete slab foundation. Yeah. My 1920 bungalow is built three feet off the ground on stone piers. Um, and it doesn't move at all. And when it rains, the water goes under it, but it was designed that way so that air could circulate around it and help keep it cooler in the summertime. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. I'm surprised it didn't go down. Isn't it cooler in basements and sub cellars? We flood. Oh uh, yeah. I guess <laughs> you wouldn't want to be down. <laughs> hey, look at my new indoor back indoor underground swimming pool. <laughs> That'd be a feature. You could market that as editing. Only 34 feet above sea level. Yeah, you guys are down there. Yeah. Mm. You dig Um, down far enough, you'll hit water. Yeah. Um, Let's pivot a bit and give you a chance to talk about what you're doing now, because I know that we've used um, American Homes for Rent, used Summit BA Solutions in the past. It's a pretty uh, useful kind of avenue. So do you want to kind of explain what it is, how it works, and what kind of a benefit it adds for both real estate professionals and property managers. Sure. Um, when we got out of, when, when, I, when the REO world crashed the year after I did the property management gig for Berkshire Hathaway, um, we were sitting around, knew we didn't want to do property management. So we were sitting around trying to figure out Bernadette, Cecile and I, what we were going to do because we really just didn't want to break up the band. Um, so we came up with this idea that we were going to open this VA company and my bar, my partner, both of them own a piece of the company, but Bernadette, my primary partner and, and the young lady who was my executive assistant, um, she had written all these training modules. And so we turned those into teaching modules because we already knew what real estate agents needed. So we opened a company called Summit VA Solutions. Worst name I could possibly pick because if you go to a real estate (laughs) trade show, everybody thinks you're there to help them with VA mortgages and VA property. Um, Never even crossed my mind. But um, the VA VA stands for virtual assistant, not for for virtual assistant, not veterans administration. So we opened a virtual, a VA or virtual assistant company. Um, unlike most VA companies, um, all of my VAs are required to go through 160 hours of live classroom training. Um, we teach contracts, the addendums, transaction coordination, teach things like social media, marketing, database management, email, all the things that an agent needs to run their office. Um, being a licensed broker here in the state of Texas, 
Um, you know, real estate agents are phenomenal salespeople, but on the whole, we are horrible trainers. So we do as much of the training as we can for them up front. And then we teach them how to train the actual agent. This is how I need you to train your VA. Yeah. Um, and they've been really successful. Um, we currently have 347 virtual assistants working for us. My entire staff is Philippine based. Um, I am the only employee in the United States. So it's a lot of fun. Um, but really, when we did this, I did really well as a real estate broker during the foreclosure boom. We call the boom. Everybody else calls it the bust. Yeah, it depends um, on which side of the equation you're on. Exactly. The subtraction and, on one side is a plus on the other. Yep, absolutely. So um, to be honest, you know, I could be retired. I'm 55 years old. Um, I could be retired and out chasing a little white ball on a big green golf course somewhere. Not my cup of tea. Um, we built this company to give the virtual assistants a place where they could get a job. They could get training. They would get a client that had been background checked and, you know, was a profitable individual who was going to work hard and was wanting to grow their business. With Summit, they don't have to have two or three jobs to make ends meet. We wanted them to be able to put their kids through college, you know, help their family members. The Philippines is an extremely poor country. So our VAs are some of the best paid in, in the industry. Um, does that mean I don't make a little money? Yeah, we make money, but that's not our focus. Our focus is to make sure that they can have lives that are worth living. Um, and that's really why we started this company. And as the guy that owns the company, um, it means a lot to me to know that I touch 300 plus families every day by making sure they have a job and they can buy a house. The number of people that have, that I get, the, I actually get the deal from the bank. Hey, your virtual assistant is looking to finance a house. We want to do an employment check. Hey, they're buying their, a car. Um, those are the things that make me go, yeah, we're making a difference in the world. That's great. Uh, so I will throw a plug in there at summitvasolutions.com. If you have any need for getting something um, off your plate so you can have more time, reach out to them. If you need property management services in the Texas area or in any of the areas we serve, you can reach Poplar at poplar.homes slash pod, that slash P-O-D. Stacy, man, it was great talking to you. I always enjoy your company. Um, thank you very much for coming on today. Justin, it's always a pleasure. It's great to work with you. It's always good to see you on the road. Well, I hope to see you on the road soon again, too. We'll share a cigar at some point. Absolutely. Take care, my friend. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time on the Poplar Podcast. <laughs>